Well, good evening. It's good to be with you this evening. We appreciate <clears throat> this opportunity and avenue for the two of us to address some important topics with you. And those of us that have been with us for some time know and kind of used to our chair series. We move the pulpit out of the way and we get these chairs up here and we kind of do a little dialogue as we talk about some things on a particular topic. And this allows us, I think, to cover more material, more depth than what we would normally get to do in a sermon. And we're really glad we can do these things to you. Is that you? Is that me? I'm not sure. I don't know. That's one of us. Hey. Okay, it's you. It's not me. It's one of us. So we're, we're focusing on God's church, God's work, and God's way. And this morning, as I try to address where the Lord's church came to in America and those powerful restoration principles, uh, that's something that's near and dear to my heart. I have a huge restoration collection of material. Got this this past week when I was in Phoenix. Got two more really valuable things that came into me personally, and it's just something that means a lot to me as we think about our heritage, our history, but more so the sentiment and the idea behind that of just getting back to the Bible. Let's just do what the Bible says, and let's just do what the Bible says. Let's be called what they were called. Let's follow what they were doing. And that's kind of the concept that we're building in this. So tonight we want to talk about the subject of autonomy. And we want to talk about what we may call church government. How's the church governed? And as we do this, we got a series of questions we're going to ask each other about this. Uh, a lot of people will, will just leave this to the leaders. You know, I, you know that's, that's not my cup of tea, and I, I really don't care. Whatever they do, they do. And that's not the right attitude to have. Uh, you're a New Testament Christian. You need to know the ins and the outs, the ups and downs of everything. And you need to know what the Bible says about this. Many of us, when we were in high school, took a class called government. And when you took a class in government, what it showed is how our nation operates and how you get the different branches of government and how a bill is created and goes on and is passed and signed by the president and goes into law. And so when we talk about this concept, biblically, how is a church governed? What is the government of the church? That's kind of what we're going to look at this evening. So let's begin with uh, one passage in particular. Let's begin with two passages in particular. And then I'll uh, ask Jason a question here as we get going on this. But in the book of Colossians, in chapter 3, in verse 17, Colossians 3, 17, the Bible says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. The expression, doing all in the name of the Lord Jesus, that doesn't mean you say that. Okay, I'm out here golfing, so I'm saying in the name of Jesus and swing my golf club. That's not what that means. That means by the permission, by the authority of God. I'm not to fly solo out here. I'm not to say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about this. I'm going to just do whatever I want to do. I need to do by the authority or the permission of God. That's, that's foremost as we think about that. And so then in the book of Philippians in chapter 1, and we'll come back to this, I'm sure, several times throughout this series. But in Philippians 1.1, we begin by seeing the concept of the local church, as we we're going to talk about here in just a minute, and how it's governed. And again, why does this matter? You know, get, as long as you get things done, that's the most important thing. Well, it doesn't work in life. We could say after services, just get home. Doesn't matter how you get home, just get home. If you got to drive through the grass, drive through the grass. No, there are laws, aren't there? 
You got to go by the laws. And so the same thing comes when it, when it comes to how a church operates. So in Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. And that's it. Saints, overseers, deacons. And we're going to be coming back to that in just a moment. So let's begin with our series. Do you have anything you want to say at the beginning? Let's go. Okay, let's go. So <clears throat> first question I want to ask is the word church, as we find it in the New Testament, is used a couple of different ways. Uh, what's the difference between what we call the universal church and the local church? Let's go to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. Simple, powerful passage that all of us need to know, need to know where it is in our Bibles, so much of who we are is built on Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. We're jumping right into the middle of a context, of course. Jesus is with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. He's just asked them, who do people say that I am? And then he looks them in the eye and says, who do you say that I am? And of course, it is Peter who answers in verse 16, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus essentially says, well done. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, and I'd especially have you notice verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, as you're turning with me to Hebrews chapter 12, let's notice a couple of things just from that passage. He's not giving us a, a specific location, a specific point in time. He simply refers to it as my church. Already from last Sunday morning and this Sunday morning, hopefully we've got it square in our minds that when we're talking about the church, we're talking about people right? But who are these people that he is promising to build in Matthew chapter 16? Well, for instance, if you've got your Bibles open there to Hebrews 12 verse 23, notice how this church is described. Hebrews 12 23, he describes us as the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in in heaven so we can't go to any particular church building here on the earth any particular museum any particular monument or memorial and ask well where is the role of the people who are a part of christ's church christ's church is made up of people number one who are enrolled in heaven. Let's go also a few pages before this to Ephesians chapter 3. How did they come to be enrolled in heaven? Well, if time allowed, we could go back to Acts chapter 2. You remember the very first gospel sermon is preached. About 3,000 respond on that day. And the very last verse of Acts chapter 2 tells us, who added them to the number? Who added them to the church? It was the Lord. 
who added them to the church. We could add to this Ephesians chapter 3 and the 21st verse of the chapter. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now if you notice carefully the language that is being used there. When we talk about the universal church, we're talking about all of God's people. Ephesians 3.21, throughout all ages, throughout all generations. Well, who knows whether or not they are a part of Christ's church? God does. Their names are enrolled in heaven. Who is the head of all of that? Well, we've already heard this evening. Christ is the head of that universal church. Now, very quickly, on the flip side of this, with the local church, we understand that in the first century world, you had people living in Jerusalem, you had people living in Ephesus, you had people living in Philippi, Colossae, the region of Galatia. And as those groups of believers came to have Christ in common, what would they do? They would form congregations or local churches in order to worship and to work together. And we'll talk about the governance of those local churches as we go along but fundamental to our discussion is a difference between the universal church made up of all of the saved, made up of people who are saved, and local churches in geographical so, locations. <clears throat> the universal church is not governed by geography. It's not governed by time. So we can look in this congregation. We have some folks very near and dear to us who passed away. Okay. Are they still part of God's church? Yes. Are they still members of this congregation? No, because they're on the other side. God's church, as we think about it universally, it doesn't assemble on Sunday. Impossible. Possible to get people all over the world, people on the other side who've already died, to assemble. Local congregations assemble. And what we're going to see here in just a moment as we stretch this a little bit more, God uses the local congregation. That is the driving force of work. And so... Universal church doesn't assemble. It doesn't really have an active work, but it's done in a local congregation. All right. So earlier, you used a, a big word that we don't often use, autonomy. We don't read that in our English translations of the Bible. So when you talk about autonomy, what are you talking about and where do we see it? Okay, let's turn our Bible to the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. There, there are several words we use, although the words are not in the Bible, the principles are. Case in point, the word Bible. The word Bible is not in the Bible, okay? But we understand that concept of God's word. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but that concept is. So when we think about the word autonomy, even though it's not that actual word is found in the Bible, it's the idea of being independent. It's the idea of uh, being, we could say, autonomous means standing alone. So here in the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, as Peter is addressing the elders or the shepherds there, 
He would say in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not, a, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. That expression, among you. The shepherds of the Charlestown Road Church, their obligation is among the people here. They don't have any role, any authority for a church outside of us. Now, over in the book of Acts, in chapter 20, again, it's just another simple statement. But these statements mean things, and we have to look at them seriously. In Acts chapter 20, and in verse 28, he would say, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock on which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. The flock. Okay? Not universal. Now, if you remember, if you were with us this morning in... One of those slides I had started off with the Pope at the top, and down and down. We had the bishops and the cardinals and all the way down. And a lot of places, including the Catholic religion, okay, you have a hierarchy that's over several people. It's almost like a, a, a CEO of a corporation. And he's over the entire corporation. And that's not what we're reading here. What we're reading here is there is a flock, a local flock, and the shepherds are over that flock. They're autonomous. So what happens here is not based upon what happens over here. What happens here is not based upon what the churches in Louisville do or what churches in Indianapolis do or any other place. We are separate from all of them, and that's kind of what we get from the idea of autonomy. Could I add one other verse. Uh, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I think this is a powerful example because it shows even the Apostle Paul respected this principle of churches being self-governing. You remember in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia. Galatia was an entire region. And he has interacted with, given instructions to those churches in Galatia. And now he says to the church in Corinth, so also you are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Now we'll talk later on about this idea of helping Christians in other locations. Benevolence is the word we often use to describe that. But even here you've got, okay, I'm going to be coming through Corinth and when I arrive, I want you to select the people from Corinth who are going to carry this gift, and if for some reason you need to go, or I need to go with them, I will, but this is you, this is your gift that is being sent. Even apostles respected this local autonomy. So, a follow-up to this. How does this differ from what we see in much of modern-day denominationalism. Well, the modern-day church, is, as I mentioned this morning, is built like a franchise. They have a headquarters. And somebody outside that local congregation is making decisions. And they determine what will be believed, how it's going to be practiced, and what is done. 
for instance, the Methodist Church, which we mentioned this morning, according to their doctrine, they are broken up like the United States government. There's a legislative branch, an executive branch, and a judicial branch. And so they have delegates from each congregation that will go to these councils and they will determine next year's bylaws. Most denominations are built that way. And so the idea is there's something larger than us. It's above us, some big body, some kind of headquarters. We send delegates there. They'll have a big convention. They'll have a, they'll have a voting. Are we going to vote on this or not? And if you follow the religious news in the last 10 years, it's happened a lot. Should we have women preachers? Should we have homosexual preachers? Those things have been voted on in the conventions. What happens is the convention decides these things, and then it trickles down to the local congregations. We have to do what the convention says. That's how mainline is done. We have no delegates here. We have no convention to go to. Some of you go to Florida College of Lectures. That has nothing to do with any of this. Nothing is decided there is going to dictate this congregation here. What we decide is based upon the New Testament. And so again, totally different picture, totally different way it's governed. And when, when I've talked to denominational preachers, sometimes they're in a wonderful church. The church loves them. They love the church. They're hoping for a long-lasting relationship. But the board above them decides it's time for you to move, and we're going to move you over to yonder. And over yonder you have to go if you're going to stay in that faith. Because the board decided that. That's not what we read about the New Testament. And so it's a really different concept from that. Now, from that, let's ask this question. Um, in the business world, franchises work. I mean, it worked great. Brand X, you know. And I have been overseas. I've been to McDonald's overseas. It looks kind of like our McDonald's. It tastes a little different sometimes. <laughs> not sure what I'm eating. But it's still there's those golden arches. Okay, still there's the Coca-Cola, there's the French, there's the French fries, okay? And, and so, so that, that same brand is everywhere. Uh, you go to Lowe's, you go to Lowe's here, you go to Lowe's in Phoenix, you go to Lowe's in Louisville, you go to Lowe's in Louisville, pretty much it's all the same, okay? Big corporation. Why doesn't that work in the church? Let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 where we'll read in, in just a second. It has certainly been tried in the religious world, no doubt. Over the ages, you have talked throughout the day about the, the Catholic model where you will have a whole lot of parishioners and over those parishioners you will have a priest and over all of the priests in a given area you'll have the bishops and over the bishops in a given region, you'll have all of the archbishops. And then over all of those archbishops, you'll have cardinals, right? And all of those cardinals ultimately look to one human being known for centuries as the Pope. It has certainly been tried, but not just in a, a Catholic model. We see it in Protestant denominationalism where you've got a whole confederation of churches who are a part of a convention, like you said, and over that convention is some sort of a council, and then over that council is some sort of a governing board. And even in many modern-day Protestant churches, evangelical churches, you will have the members, and over the members, some sort of committee, and over the committee, some sort of a board of directors, and over all of those is the pastor 
recently. It's been tried a whole lot. Now, there's one, there's, there are many, but one fundamental problem with that. And I think if we go back to 1 Timothy, we can easily illustrate it. It's not in the Bible. Now, let me ask you, if ever there was a point in history where it would have been a good idea to have some sort of oversight from somewhere, wouldn't it have been this moment in 1 Timothy? The Apostle Paul is not able to be in Ephesus. In fact, more than likely, based on Acts 20, where you were earlier, he will never be able to be in Ephesus again. And so what has he done? In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to Timothy, right? Timothy is a young man. You, you read the letter and you get the sense that this young man is faced with a lot of things that make him feel very inadequate to this task. And so, in many ways, 1 Timothy is is challenging Timothy, calling him to step up, fill this gap, right? But nowhere in this inspired letter from an apostle do we ever read anything like, wait for support from Jerusalem, or wait for the delegation from Antioch. There will be people from Alexandria who come and, and help you, no? What this young man is tasked with doing is establishing overseers. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Or you flip over to chapter 5 and verse 17 where he says, Let the elders who rule well well, who are these men? Same basic group of men as in Acts chapter 20, right? Paul calls elders from the church at Ephesus down and charges them to watch over the flock that is among them. That's, that's exactly the work we're, we're having described right here. That the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. In verse 19, he says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The church in Ephesus was not being overseen by people who weren't in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus was being overseen by men you could look in the eye, right? Men who fit the description of 1 Timothy chapter 3 where we were earlier. Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin... You don't have to write a letter hundreds of miles away to those leaders. You don't have to hop on a boat and cross the, the Mediterranean. Timothy, you're in Ephesus. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. What we have here is not Timothy the pastor over the church in Ephesus. In fact, you can read First and Second Timothy forward and backward, upside down, every which way, and you will never 
here Timothy referred to as a pastor. He was to do the work of an evangelist. And this was not a, a franchise being set up in Ephesus. This was an independent local church where this young man is tasked with setting in order what remains here and establishing local oversight. And, and you mentioned something. Sometimes <clears throat> we hear people talking about this. Jerusalem is never called in the Bible the mother church. Sometimes within our fellowship, we may refer to another congregation <laughs> as a sister church. Uh, you, don't, you don't find that in the Bible. There's a sister who's the mama. You know, that's the question. <laughs> and so we don't, we don't have that. That, that. that leads to this hierarchy system. Everything came out of Jerusalem was started in Jerusalem. Where it came out of was heaven. And so Jerusalem didn't set the pace. What happened was God set the pace. And that, that helps us to kind of appreciate that. A follow-up question here as we think about this. Uh, couldn't churches do a lot more if we worked as a confederation of churches? Years ago in the 1800s, this is how they justified it. They had a picture of a, of a mule or a horse pulling a log. And the old horse is just straining but you put two or three of those horses on that same log, it can move it a lot faster. So if we hook up two or three churches here, we can do a lot more a lot faster. Makes sense in the business world. All right. I'm going to lean on a sermon from earlier this year. And uh, if you would like to, to go back and revisit in full, it was just called, So What Denomination Are We? But in that sermon... I tried to show up a really basic, we're going to go back to elementary school English for just a moment. We won't linger long there, so don't tune out. But to show a really important point from Scripture. We've got singular nouns, right? Where if we've got a single link, a metal link, we've got a word for that. Or in Scripture, if you had a single disciple it's not unusual at all for that disciple to be referred to as a Christian a single Christian and you took us back to Philippians for instance when you've got a single church we've got a word for that we read all about that in the pages of the New Testament right and we also read about it in a, a plural sense we understand that if You've got more than one of those metal ovals. We call those links, right? Or we could say of more than one disciple or more than one Christian. Those are Christians. And same sort of thing. You, you quoted this morning from Romans chapter 16, verse 16. Churches, right? When we've got multiple congregations that we're talking about. Now, I want you to listen very carefully and think with me very, very critically. We've got collective nouns. So if you get some sort of a vehicle in a ditch and, and you've got someone with four-wheel drive and a big pickup and, and you need them to pull you out, you don't say to them, hey, would you go get all of the metal links that you have and let's, let's attach them together. No, we've got a, a collective noun for that. We call a bunch of links a chain, right? And in Scripture, we've got a whole lot of Christians who have decided to work and to worship together. We call those. Those are called by God a church. Now, the question is, 
when you've got a whole confederation of churches who are going to work together like links in a chain or a, a whole lot of churches that are going to work together the way a, just a whole bunch of individuals work together. What's the word for that in Scripture? And again, you can read it forwards, backwards, and upside down in every which way. And never do we read about a confederation of congregations. What we do read about, of course, is under the Lord's authority, each group maintaining their own affairs without being controlled or overseen by any other congregation. Let's just put some different words up there. Okay. Instead of a link, let's put a boat. A boat. Let's put two boats. Boats. Or ships. Collectively, let's call it a fleet. Okay. What makes a fleet? The United States Navy. What's in the United States Navy? All kinds of layers of captains, admirals, all the way up to the President of the United States. He's over all military. So what you have is you have this big organization called the United States Navy. If I happen to be a captain on the boat and the fleet's going this way and say, hey, you know what? I want to go this way. Uh -uh. Why? Because I'm governed by the rules of that concept of collective collectivity, the idea that we are all in that together. And so that concept is not found among churches. When we talk about churches of Christ, we're talking about the middle column there. We're not talking about the right-hand column. And so, again, we need to see and appreciate that. Denominationalism has everyone together. We Baptists and we Methodists. We, and, and, and the we means we're all collected together. We get our information from above, being some board, some hierarchy. They tell us what to do. So far, in some churches, it's even told what they're going to be preaching every Sunday in each church. It's decided ahead of time. It's sent all the way. That filters down through all the layers of administrators and everyone else down to the very bottom. And that's why each preacher preaches in those churches. So everybody gets the same thing. All right. So if there is no hierarchy, no headquarters, what or who keeps everybody on the same page? Okay. That's a great question. And so when you turn to Revelation, we won't look at that, we won't look at it specifically, but when you look in Revelation 2 and 3, we have seven churches. They are not the same. We have Ephesus, who left his first love. We have Philadelphia, who has a door open for great opportunity. We have Laodicea, who's lukewarm. We have Ephesus, who hates the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, but about two churches later, there's another church who embraces that church of the Nicolaitans. So what we see with autonomy is each church is independent, okay? What keeps us true to the book? Our hearts, our faith, our leadership. That's the key there. So again, let's, let's put on a couple of verses on this just, just for you to see this. In the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, all throughout Timothy, Paul is warning Timothy about false teachers. And we, we refer to this even today. When it says in verse 3, verse 4, time will come when they not endure sound doctrine. Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Turn away from their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. What's his solution? His solution is, you're going to get a memo from Jerusalem. 
you read this memo, if you don't agree with this and sign your name to it, you're out. No. What's the solution? Verse 5, but you be sober in all things, endure hardships, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Up above in verse 2, preach the word. Acts 17, verse 11, what did they do? Those who are more noble-minded, they search the scriptures daily. That's why the shepherds, our Bible class teachers, our preachers, and even among you, we're, we're encouraging you to read that Bible every day, know that Bible every day. And so air can't get in here because we know the answer. We have the book. And so there's no police force above us. There's no judicial committee above us. There's no anything above us that's going to say, this is going to keep you true to the course as long as you do these things. What keeps us true is following the Bible. The closer we are to this, the closer we are to Jesus. The farther we are, the more trouble we're going to get into. And so that's how you do it. And, and it's no magic. It's just kind of following what the Word of God says. So another question, how is autonomy actually a God-given blessing? Let's go back to Revelation 2 where you were just a moment ago. As you mentioned, we've got seven different churches there. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And let me just illustrate it using one of them. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. You start reading in chapter 1, that's Jesus. Jesus has a message for the church in Ephesus. And of course, what it revolves around in verse uh, 4 is, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Verse 5 is really important here. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Now, remember, this is the same group that Paul had met with their elders in Acts chapter 20. This is the same area where Timothy was tasked with staying there and, and helping them stay true to faith. And now, decades later, we've got the Lord saying, you've left your first love. Remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, Jesus said, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, that would be devastating. But let's say that he did it. That does not impact the church in Philadelphia. Or the church in Sardis. Or the church in Smyrna. This is not a handicap. This is not a defect in the design where we've got to figure out how to adapt this to be more efficient in the 21st century. What we see here is the wisdom of God. It works. If the top became rotten, everything down below becomes rotten. But since each is independent, you get a group that goes like lukewarm, that's their problem. We don't have to be that way. And that, that's the beauty in all of this as we think about that. All right. So as we begin to wind this down, are we just being a bunch of curmudgeons up here? 
splitting hairs, straining at gnats. Is this really that big of a deal? It is if you want to follow the Bible. Um, remember in the, book of Noah, in the book of Genesis, when God told Noah to build the ark, he says he did what God commanded him to do. Now, what we've talked about is, is pure departures from the Bible. So if we're going to have an organization larger than this church, okay, we're going to have some people that's not named in the Bible. They're not going to be overseers. They're not going to be deacons. They're not going to be saints. They may be supervisors, presidents. Okay, How are they going to get paid? What are they supposed to do? What, what's their function? All of this is outside of the Bible. And once you start leaving that Bible, anything can happen. The old story of once you open that door, you can't close that door. And that's where, that's where the modern church is today. Because they've gone so far away from the Bible, they're not following the things of the Bible. Does this matter? It does if we want to be New Testament Christians. It does if we want to honor God. It does if we want to be the, Bible, the church we read about in the Bible. If we don't want to do that, then let's get about putting some delegates. Now, I'll be out of here because I won't be a part of that. <laughs> but, but, but that's the idea. And so, so the difference we're talking about here is, is a matter of following the Word of God or not following the Word of God. Then who's going to run it? Who's going to fund it? Who's going to decide it? You've got a whole organization here that's completely man-made, not having the wisdom of God in it. And what we've seen throughout religious history is different groups such as the Presbyterians, such as the Methodists, splitting because the hierarchy has decided we are going to tell you, you will have a homosexual preacher in your pulpit. We don't want that. So we have to break away from that body. Now we have to get a new council, a new convention, a new stuff, new bylaws because we don't agree with that. And it just gets messier and messier and messier. Just follow the Bible. And that's God's wisdom, and that's God's plan. So, let's wrap this up. Why is this so important for us to understand and to believe that the church God created was equipped and sufficient to do what it's always supposed to do? Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 2, where we'll be here in just a moment. You mentioned the ark, Roger. I, uh, as I was thinking about this question earlier this afternoon, I... There was several years ago, uh, we had a, a group that we met in the Smokies and we did some hiking and we did uh, for several years in a row some whitewater rafting. I love whitewater rafting. I don't know if anybody else in here does. But if you're going to whitewater raft, your raft needs to be fully inflated. I learned that the hard Well, I already knew that, but I experienced that the hard way several years ago. Uh, we would go down to the Nantahala River and uh, there would be all of these really professional shops where you could get a guide and you could get a, a, just the whole outfit really nice, shiny, ready to go. And, and I grew up, for better or worse, driving past all of those and going to a nice little mom and pop hollow where they had a trailer and a bunch of very not so gently used rafts. But they were cheap and so that's where we would go and we would get the raft all day and, and, and did that several years in a row until one year 
we got about maybe a half mile down the river and I'm sitting in the very back of the boat and I'm noticing something that, that shouldn't be happening. The, the air all around me is definitely appearing to go down and, and we are riding much, much lower in the boat than we should. And we had miles to go and we did our best. But I've got to tell you, with that raft not fully inflated, it was really, really, really easy to drift. And not just to drift, but to take on much, much more water than we should have. And there were multiple times that we had to get off to the side of the road or the side of the river and dump the whole thing. Otherwise, we weren't going to come back home with that raft. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1, therefore, we are told, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What we were experiencing that day in the Smokies was a raft that really wasn't sufficient to get us down the river. And what you and I and every single generation have got to decide is whether or not what we have heard is sufficient. Are we going to take what we have heard and refuse to drift away from it? And trust that even though it is different from the world and, and in the eyes of the world peculiar, do we believe it is equipped and sufficient to get us home? It is no secret that many, many, many people over the course of many centuries have lived as if this isn't sufficient. This isn't equipped enough. We've got to add more. We've got to cut some things out altogether. But I'd like to end with you where Brent began us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Because I think this is the heartbeat of everything. You want a good way to really study the Bible and allow the Bible's message to sink into your heart. Pay attention to the prepositions in what we're reading. Brent started us out by reminding us in verse 20 that this is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Jesus, he's level, he's squared. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. The church does not exist for you. The church does not exist for me. There are blessings in it. But this is God's church. This is for him, 
by the Spirit. Well, that's, that's it. In Christ, for God, by the Spirit. That is sufficient to get us home. And when we start messing with that, we might attract a lot of attention, we might create a lot of buzz, but what we're building is not the Lord's church. And so we encourage you to think, even as we sing this invitation song, is this my life? Am I in Christ? Am I living for God by the Spirit? And if not, why not make that right Right here, right now. Why not be a part of God's church? You remember earlier, we, we heard that there is a role in heaven. Well, how in the world do you become enrolled in heaven by God? It's Acts chapter 2. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. and You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As many as did that, were added by the Lord to His church. That can be true of you this evening. So if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, if you could use some prayers, encouragement this evening, this is for you. Let us know how we can help by coming to the front while we stand and sing together.